everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. The goal of this show is to understand the inner workings and evolution of mixology, hospitality, and community. As I further my own knowledge of the field, I'm inviting you to join me. You'll hear me interview people from around the industry about their work and beliefs. If you like what you hear, the best way to keep up is to subscribe via the podcast app you use. And if you think others will like this, I invite you to share an episode or write a review. Your words help grow our audience. And you can keep up with the latest news via our newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, or see what we're working on via Instagram. And please reach out. I'd enjoy hearing what you liked, learned, and what else you'd like to see me dig into. So let's get into it. My guest for the inaugural episode of the Decoding Cocktails podcast is Demetrius Kane. He's the founder and head distiller of Nobleton's Distilling House. Their first product, Ducket Rum, was like all good things, worked out for years before launching in 2018. Nobleton's has since created an orange liqueur called Curacao Noir, People's Gin, an apple brandy, a whiskey, and more is on the way. Nobleton's recently expanded, moving their operations to Marthasville, Missouri, which is the home of the orchards that supply the apples for their farm-to-glass brandies. With the move has come the addition of a tasting room and public events, which will include educational and other distiller-centric activities. You can learn more at nobletons.com or give them a call at 314-252-8990. Tours and tastings are available from 4 to 8 p.m. on Fridays and 2 to 8 p.m. on Saturdays. So a little bit of context setting for you guys and uh, uh, based on a few definitions that came up. So we talk about both fermentation and distillation, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Fermentation is the process of converting starches into sugar. And from there, when those sugars are subjected to yeasts, alcohol is the effective byproduct. And this ultimately, this mash that comes as a result of it, the thing is about it is that the yeast that creates alcohol, like beer and wine, ultimately dies out around a 10 to 15% alcohol environment. This is where distillation comes in. Distillation is the process of boiling a mash, and because alcohol has a lower boiling point than water, eventually the alcohol evaporates, separating it from the rest of the mash, and is then cooled and distilled and separated, thus giving rise to many of the spirits we know. So a couple things that I just thought were wonderful in this opening segment. When Demetrius really gets wound up on talking about the time he devotes to fermenting, think a little bit about that compared to he talks about that his guess is that most other distilleries out there are typically spending 24, 48 hours, maybe a couple of days fermenting their products. He's often averaging roughly 48 days, and he talks a little bit about the difference between a slow versus a faster fermentation. And I think this could just be an interesting question. The next time you're on a tour or digging into whatever your favorite spirit is, how long do they ferment and distill for? Uh, That is, to my mind, something that's interesting. It doesn't, to his point, necessarily yield a a better product. The best product is the one you really like. But I think it kind of really shows off what he also often refers to as like his real commitment to things. He talks about the ways that it will be harsh versus not when it's a lot longer of a fermentation period. He also talks about the way that you might think of rums like he makes, which is kind of considered a French Caribbean style, compared to a uh, the molasses version that most of us have tried in most of the rums. He says that roughly over 95% of rums are made from molasses rather than cane juice, as he uses. But he talks about them as tequila versus mezcal. I think that part was really fantastic. And the final thing that I th- really enjoyed during this that speaks to the absolute passion this man has for running his business is he said something along the lines of when he really was feeling impatient uh, about rushing things he said you know what 
you need to slow down and actually find that patience because if you can't you don't deserve what's coming so with that here's demetrius demetrius thanks for taking some time today it should be should note up front that because you are a uh great and hardworking dad that uh you have a little bit of a sore throat today because you were making a ton of money for them over the weekend so thanks for making some time for us today definitely definitely chris i i appreciate you being here tonight rum at the highest level starts with the sugarcane plant as we've been talking about yep but from there there are kind of two roads i think might be the fairest thing like you know you get this far back in history and you can debate what came first, but you can either juice the sugar cane plant like you would a carrot or some celery, or you can move towards making sugar and then you have this byproduct called molasses. Am I, so one, am I incorrect, but for the people out there listening who are like, like, what is it? Rum can take these distinct paths. Do you mind talking about them if that's the correct way to highlight it? Yeah, so it's actually one path. So all so rum, all rum is pressed. So you press rum, um, which is usually uh, the commercial presses today. Um, it's going to typically be two spinning, you know, spinning wheels, and the bundles are going to come through it. And the wheels are kind of, as it presses through, it the stock still stays intact. So when it comes out the other side, it just looks deflated and flat. But the juice is then, <clears throat> and that's where the two paths come in, is now you have this juice. What do you do with it? In the agricole world, um, in the French West Indies, the agricole, <clears throat> the agricole is then just fermented from fresh pressed cane juice. And so, and by doing so, um, it's, it gains the, the notoriety of being part of one of the most exclusive types of rum, which is agricole. But it's because it's made from fresh cane juice and it's in the French West Indies. So like champagne has to come out of champagne, everything else is sparkling wine. doesn't matter how good it is. It's just, you know, it's just a region. So you have to make it the right way. Plus it has to be in a region. Um, the sec and so if you don't make rum out of that, and now you have this juice, then you begin boiling it. So um, going all the way back, you know, to the primitive style, you would put in giant copper kettles or giant stainless steel um, or even, you know, a cast, you know, cast iron giant kettles, and you begin boiling. And the froth comes up, you scoop it off, um, and then as you boil it down, you continue scooping off the sugars, and that's where your crystallized sugars come from. So as it boils down, you scoop off a certain amount and you cool it down and then you break it into the, into the crystals. And that's where you get your different grades of sugar, you know, all the way down through your table sugars. Um, a lot of people assume brown sugar is um, a different type of sugar, but it's really just white sugar with a little bit of molasses, fancy molasses. But that's, that's what it is, you know, so it's kind of... You know, it's not, it's all made in the same process. It's not like a different type of sugar cane. Um, now, some, there are thousands of varieties of sugar cane, just like, you know, there's hundreds of varieties of apples and hundreds of varieties of grapes and peaches and everything. Um, but all of them make sugar. And then as you boil it down, you will get your grades of molasses. So you're going to end up with, you know, your sweeter molasses, which still have a lot of sugar in them. And you scoop those out, and instead of crystallizing them, you keep them in the syrup form so you don't dehydrate them. Um, and as you keep going down, you end up with your uh, kind of your baking grade molasses and then your backstrap molasses, which is typically what's used for rum making. Backstrap is kind of like the lowest form. So it's before you would throw it away, you turn it into something, which is why um, kind of that's kind of why rum exists. Right. Because it's, you know, like, some people look at it as it's like, oh, it's the worst kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of bitter and you say you have to age it so it doesn't taste bitter and all this stuff. But if they didn't do that, they'd be throwing this heavily burnt substance into the ground, which would then hurt the soil. 
So it's a way of kind of recycling. So rum is, the rum industry is kind of born out of this desire to recycle. So you don't just destroy the, the ground where you're growing sugarcane um, and making sugar. So then you're like, what do we do with this sticky stuff? Um, and so that's kind of where the rum industry comes from. Um, and so partially, yes, it has two paths, but it's after it's juiced, after it's pressed. So, And, and thank you for that, that clarification that, you know, makes sense now that you say it. Um, so for people out there listening who might not necessarily have had a lot of rum in their days, mm-hmm. most people have probably had rum from molasses based if they've had a little bit of rum here and there yeah because a majority of it is that versus cane sugar isn't that correct yeah about i would say probably about 95 percent of the world's rum if not more than that like 98 or 99 percent of the world's rum is made out of um molasses and and like i said there's nothing wrong with that style it's like some of my favorite rums in the world are made out of molasses that's just the way the industry is and they're absolutely beautiful product. And so, yeah. So for all the variation we come into, you know, perhaps, you know, we can think of it like, because a term after, before we are distilling the rum, it's called the wine. So let's talk about wine. You know, clearly there are grapes the world over and grapes from this region, you know, grapes at this elevation vary. So when we think about all the different tastes that vary in, in our rums, is some of it different styles of sugarcane or different terroir, different barrels? Like, are, are these all the reasons why we're going to have such wide variation in flavor? Or am I ask, answering too big of a question here? Yeah, so it, it's going to be like any other plant. So you're going to have your uh, terroir, which is going to be the soil. How does a plant interact with the soil mineralogy and the the composition of the soil? You know, are you dealing with a loamy, a sandy, a clay, um, a rocky, a lava bed? You know, and those are all going to change the way that the the sugarcane tastes. So, but the but you lose that the further you get away from the sugarcane juice. So the further and further you get away from the initial juicing of the sugarcane, you're going to taste less and less of that. And also when you send, so once you send your, unless you have a sugarcane, like a, um, a sugar factory on your, your farm, you're most likely buying molasses. And then that starts messing up the terroir as well because then a whole bunch of farms are sending to the same mill and then that mill processes all that molasses and then they send out molasses. Right. And so then that messes up. So it's, it's hard to trace terroir unless you have your own sugarcane mill on your farm or you're using juice, which typically if you're using juice, you probably have your own sugarcane mill. So Nobleton's is the distilling brand. Ducket Rum up until now has been our flagship. There are some yep. things that have emerged and are on the horizon yeah Uh, some will be coming later folks you'll get to hear about them but so a couple things so uh you are making rums in that more west indian style where we are working with the actual the actual cane juice correct so tell us about that and and importantly and i can remind if you get caught in the wind up here but you talked about how far away are we moving from, you know, the land. I'd like to also explore Ducket's um, and Nobleton's uh, agricultural practices, too. So tell yep. us a little bit about Ducket Rum, how people should think about it, and then maybe we'll get a little bit into how your approach to to the agricultural world, too. Yeah. Um, man, you've got really good questions. These are really good questions. Um, so th- I, I hope that I'm not too amateurish to answer some of these. So for anybody listening, um, there are some fantastic voices in the rum world too that have much, much more knowledge than I do. So um, if there's anything that you're like, this is, this might not be a, like, and that's why I say some of this is my opinion. 
Um, but on the on the rum side for Nobletons, um, the way that we so we we don't step far away from the land. We my like my relatives still manage the farm that we produce all of our sugarcane on. Um, it's grown by the same generations of hands that have grown up for the last four minimum. Um, some go back further than that. Um, and so we know the land. Um, the So for us, doing rum in the French West Indies style, the French style, is to us part partially the reason why we do it is because we're in a former French territory. So we're in the Louisiana River Valley, um, as we kind of like jokingly call it, the LRV. Um, and eventually we're going to start doing some Louisiana River Valley uh, specific vintages um, where when we find certain barrels that are really um, fantastic, we're going to start releasing some single barrels that are just really showcased. Um, the terroir, the flavor, the texture, the composition, the uh, bouquet, all of these things that we feel like really elicit that um, that type, that style of rum. And so we start with using uh, fresh pressed sugar cane juice. Uh, we bring it up on barges. Now, one of the big differences between us and like a French West Indies is a we're not in the French West Indies, so it's not agricole. Um, we could make it out of the you know we could be in Louisiana fermenting it the same day. It doesn't matter. It's not agricole. If it's not in the French West Indies, and that's part of a respect thing. That's not a law that somebody tells us we can't call it that. Um, unlike champagne, champagne is legal. Um, within the rum world, it's kind of the French West Indies are too small and they don't have enough political power to force large governments like the United States to protect their national heritage. Um, and so sometimes that falls upon the companies. So for us, it falls upon us not to take from them um, part of their national heritage. So it is American rum. Um, we lovingly call it Louisiana River Valley American rum um, because to us, the style of rum that we make is very special. Um, so once it's sent up here, we typically do refrigerated barges. Uh, the second piece is that, that makes us not agricole is that we aren't able to technically begin fermentation within 24 hours of press um, legally fermentation must begin once the the raw material reaches the distillery so all distillation you know uh, all fermentation through distillation has to be completed in the facility that is bonded and licensed so that's my final answer on that um and so for us that's it, it's really a one ingredient thing sure and and so you know and and obviously rum distribution can vary a little bit but so you know and whether or not i'm going to use bacardi as an example just because of this but so if someone was if someone had uh, a bottle of ducats Blue, uh, is it is it is the name Blanc or, or what do you call your your, your white rum? My my apologies. Um, I would call it silver. Okay. We will eventually be putting Blanc rum on it okay. um, to denote the French style, um, but as of right now, it is our blue label. Perfect. White rum. Uh, so if someone were to encounter your silver rum yep. compared to that of a Bacardi, which at least can, they're going to be colored the same way, and that they will both be perfectly yep. see through. From the moment that they will pop the top on the caps of those two bottles, they're going to encounter something drastically different, smelling yours and tasting yours. Talk to us a little bit about what that aroma is going to be like and what that taste is going to be like when they're, yeah. when they're enjoying it. So um, kind of first off, uh, if I was just sitting right next to Bacardi, Bacardi uh, is 40% or 80%, 80 proof. Um, and ours is a hundred proof. So first off, ours is a lot higher proof. So that's kind of something that I always tell people is, um, I'm, I like making rum and I like making spirits that kick, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to waste your time. I'm not going to waste my time. 
if you want to if you want to make a cocktail, I don't want to I don't want to scrimp on the proof of my product, so that you have to waste juice, because to me it's kind of a bartender thing. When I worked in bartending, I hated when you had a watered down cocktail, and it's all because the base spirit wasn't high enough proof. So I'm like, you know, nobody ever complained about getting a bigger drink. So if Truth. it's too strong, add a little bit more juice and just enjoy a little bit more. Um, so it's a little bit stronger proof there. But the big thing is going to be the aroma. So Bacardi is made to be very uniform. So you're talking a highly mass-produced product, industrially manufactured, um, to always be the same. Nothing wrong with that. That's what they're, That's their drive, to make a $13 bottle of rum or whatever it comes out at. And, you know, it's, it's made out of sugarcane, molasses, so technically it's a rum. But it's more like a vodka. It doesn't have a lot of flavor. It doesn't have a lot of texture. Um, and it will make, lead to a lot of bad decisions. Our rum, the best way to describe it and is it's, if you've ever had tequila and then you have a mezcal, a mezcal is made out of agave too, but it doesn't taste like tequila. It has these aromas, these textures, this, this leatheriness. And that's how our rum is to other mass produced rums. It has a kind of a banana or plantain aroma to it. A little bit of vegetal, um, has a little spring crisp green apple with kind of grassy notes on the finish. Um, and it has a viscosity. So it actually has texture. So when you, when you take a sip, it will, although it's strong, it will set in your mouth because the oil content is correct. And what I mean correct doesn't mean that everybody else is wrong, but we believe in long fermentations. So our minimum fermentation is 48 days. That develops that texture. And so by developing and properly processing that texture, it creates more, um, it, it creates better fluid dynamics in a cocktail. So when you mix it, it's going to better balance itself with whatever else you're adding to it. It's going to carry that flavor and move it around. And so whether you enjoy drinking a Coke or you want to make a, you know, a daiquiri or a caprahenia or whatever, it's going to balance better than that 40 proof rum that had everything stripped out, even though it's higher proof. Like I make extracts all the time for my wife for like baking, like vanilla extracts and all those things. And if you use a little bit of our white rum to make those, it's fantastic. And it's because it has the oil. Mm. Everything else is stripped out. So. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned that Duckett's rum is fermented for about 48 days. Correct. Yep. And, you know, to some people they go, oh, 48. That's interesting. But without any context. For a lot of other distillers, and maybe you know whether it's rum or not, how long are people temp, uh, typically dis, uh, fermenting for? And what might the difference be if I was going to ferment for a week versus, in, in your case, what, uh, seven weeks? So, yeah. so I, I can't speak to a lot of other distilleries. Um, I, I would assume most distilleries are at the longest seven days, if not most are, you know, 24 to 48 hour fermentations, um, hot, fast, get the job done distill quick, you know, get the product out as fast as possible. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But from my experience and kind of the way that I've invested my knowledge and my research is that typically um, pre-industrial age fermentations, you would begin the fermenting after harvest and you would run them into the winter. So all the way through harvest, you would get done preserving all your food. Um, and then once it starts freezing outside, 
well, that's a great time to start making alcohol. And so that was kind of like, so if you look at the time of when most crops are harvested, that's when you start looking at that, you know, seven weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks um, fermentation time. So that was part of like what led me to that. Like we need to go longer in the fermentations. The second side was watching how fermentation and learning from the wine industry. Because one of the things that I think distillers a lot of times, and I know myself, when I first began distilling, was it was like, how quickly can I get done with fermentation? Because this is boring. I want alcohol. And it's not that I want to drink the alcohol, but it's like, I'm here to make alcohol. I want it as fast as possible to see what mistakes I made or what I can tweak or what I can do because that's what I'm here for. You know, I'm a distiller. I distill. I don't make fermentations. I don't mash. And for me, it was kind of that learning curve of you need to slow down. You need to take a breath. If you can't be patient, you don't deserve to do it. So taking that step back, reading, watching what winemakers do because vintners you know, talk about it, uh, just a amazing wealth of knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, vintners are so good at writing down everything they do. And I think distillers, if you look back through like historical distillers, it's like started fermentation, made rum, good rum, barrels. And then there's like an age of the barrel. And you're like, well, cool. Like that was really not that detailed. Like, and winemakers are very different. They talk about the soil and the climate and the weather that year. They talk about the vintage and what makes that. Like, we had a late frost in this season, but we found that the grapes, we got fewer grapes, but we had a better, like the, the grapes that survived had a better yield and the flavor and the texture and the terroir came through in this way. And, or the tannins had a thicker, you know, like, like the tannins were thicker in these, this section. And that fascinated me. And so by taking from them, I began kind of like extending out the fermentation and watching what was happening in the fermentation because the fermentation, I wouldn't say, continues for 48 days. Okay. The fermentation where the yeast is active for us, and we do a lot of our own yeast breeding, is typically during the summer, it only goes for about two weeks in the winter, in the winter, you can get it to continue fermenting for a long time at really cold temperature, like not really cold, like 65. And that's really fun. I, I love those winter fermentations because they'll go for, you know, four, five, six weeks almost fully. And they're still bubbling at the end of it. And you're just like, that's cool. Um, but once it's done fermenting, the lease begin dropping out so that's all the dead yeast cells it's all the cloudiness and when we distill so for me 48 days is an average we have some that go a lot longer but i watch for that to separate to where the spirit that where the the where it becomes more wine-like sure where it's if i were to taste if you were to for me and I clearly deserve it. But if you were to run a batch for me that ferments for two days versus 48 days, or you, or you pick the number, for me, the consumer... It's going to be it, really harsh. Okay. And um, it's going to be a lot like most of the market. Got it. So, so giving it more time, perhaps maybe a little bit like also making... In, Put me back here. I know you also cook quite a bit at home, but when you cook a sauce low and slow, it gives it more time to mellow and blend together. But giving, regardless of the analogy, giving the product more time to sit is helping those flavors to soften. Um, I would say texture. The way that it interacts with your with with your palate is the best way to put it because um like with with our apple brandy the aroma from a four-week fermentation to some of our fermentations for apple go have gone eight months and the aroma is insane 
And so for something like that, the aroma is a big difference. The rum, the aroma doesn't change a ton, but the texture and the way it interacts with the palate is night and day. If I do a hot, fast fermentation, it's super just burny, gasoline, ethanol-y. And like some people are into that, I guess. Um, I'm not. I I like, I, I enjoy, if I'm going to sit down and enjoy a spirit, whether it be in a cocktail or neat, um, I like feeling like I'm not angry at the world. Yeah. But, you know, to each their own, I guess. Some people like that, <laughs> that rage, I guess. Because <laughs> there's fireball. I, I certainly know those, those raging spirits right there. Okay, so we're back with a uh, quick little bit of context setting for our second segment. In this segment, we're really going to jump into a little bit more of Demetrius's family history, the fact that they've owned a sugarcane plantation for many years, the fact that for a long time uh, it didn't, it wasn't running that well. Uh, we talk a little bit about why that is a turnaround in more high-end sugars led to. Uh, there finally being demand for that, and that's where his sugar cane comes from uh, to this day. We also discuss what I think is very important and a very uncomfortable thing for many people. The fact that sugarcane is not native to this part of the world, and when it was brought here, it was brought here um, as the sugar trade uh, played the largest role in the colonial slave trade. And so rum, as a byproduct of this, is... Um, a very hard but important story of a of a byproduct that was created from this horrible thing. And Demetrius really sees this as a conversational point um, and a thing that we should not shy away from, that we should use it as a point to talk about the wrongs that were done, but the beautiful product that came as a result of it. And at the same time, he's very quick to echo that he feels that rum is the spirit of the Americas. He'll talk a lot about the fact that it was made by the poorest of the poor and consumed by the richest of the rich. Uh, so listening to him talk about that and make that case is very is very interesting. Finally, we talk a little bit about his commitment as an agriculturalist. Uh, they're now living on this, uh, living on. They're they're now working on this orchard, and. Um, now, one of the other people that works with Demetrius tells me, he's like, you can definitely tell that the apple blossom flavors are working their way into uh, some of what's coming on there. And so I really liked when he said, we're not selling you a product. We're selling a commitment is something he talks about in this segment. And you can just feel it, that it's in this man's bones um, about creating a product of integrity. So uh, enjoy this second segment and uh, everything else will be in the uh, show notes and the transcript. And uh, enjoy, guys. So, you know, for me, you know, for an onlooker in the spirits world, it might be the case that someone might say, so what's your background before coming into the whole world of rum? Yeah. And you weren't in the field, but your family history, legacy, gets a little bit to this, so... What came to call you to be in this? I know there's a little bit of also uh, intrigue that happened in college, but talk about a little bit of your family legacy and how you decided to get into the business of making rum in the first place. Yeah, so um, rum for my family is, you know, we, we're a family of immigrants. Uh, we immigrated into the uh, United States, you know, in the mid-18, mid to late 1800s. Um, we were... Irish immigrants. So um, if you kind of look back at history during that kind of period of time, um, a lot of the the Irish that were coming into the country, they weren't really highly respected. Um, there was a lot of tension between uh, England and Ireland at the time. And due to that friction, uh, it, it was, you know, difficult to find, difficult to find work. So my family came in through the, the Louisiana Bayou, um, the Ducket side. And, um, during the time, you know, they, they had different shops that they had ran and, you know, kind of made a name for the family down in Louisiana. And 
a sh- kind of failing sugarcane plantation um, <clears throat> kind of came in uh, to the kind of, I guess, kind of like the, the like came to the sphere of influence of my ancestors that they knew that this farm was out there. Um, they ended up purchasing it and uh, did a horrible job of they, they weren't farmers. We didn't really know what we were doing. Uh, nearly lost the farm multiple times. Um, and it really wasn't until uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s that the type of sugar cane that they were growing um, made really good raw sugar cane for, you know, when coffee kind of started coming back, um, people started adding raw sugar cane crystals to it. And all of a sudden, this heirloom variety sugar cane that didn't produce well um, <laughs> had a place in the market again. And that was kind of like the revitalization of the family farm. Um, and through that, that was kind of like in the midst of my upbringing. Um, and I didn't grow up on the farm. I grew up in Northern Oregon where some of my family had settled as well. So it was kind of like extended family. Um, my great grandfather at the time, um, that was his, the ducket line was he had moved to Northern Oregon after world war one. Um, there was kind of that like introduction into this one side of the family and it fascinated me. And by doing so, I, I kind of started researching and, you know, when we went down, we would have, you know, we'd sit down at the dinner, dinner table and you would pull out a bottle of, you know, and they just, they just called it, you know, they just called it moonshine. And, um, you know, I was 12, 13, 14 at the time, you know, it wasn't like I was, you know, and, and you'd try a little bit and, and it was just interesting because, you know, by that point, in, you know, I, I grew up on a farm, I, I'd had moonshine and I was like, this is, it didn't taste the same. You know, there's a lot of difference. And I was like, you know, this is smooth. This is good. And, you know, then you kind of break down through it and they're like, well, it's rum kind of, you know, it's made from the sugar cane on the farm. Um, and you got to start talking through that and you find this like really fascinating way that, you know, they were taught how to make the rum by former workers that were on the farm when they purchased the farm and it's just kind of been handed down. So it's a, it's the way in which, you know, it's kind of a French style, um, agricultural style rum, you know, it's made from the raw sugar cane juice, opposed to molasses. It's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of that single ingredient style, which is kind of like what we, uh, do in everything. So, it, well, not everything, but it's, it's focused on that, you know, where it's like, you don't add water, you don't add sugar, you don't add additives, you just let it ferment. Right. Um, so. So, you know, as we sit here in the newer, the not newer, new Nobleton's Distilling Warehouse, um, you kind of got your foray into things with rum, and I'd like to start there with rum in general as a category, yeah. and then I'd like to, we can certainly delve into what Nobleton's is all about. But one of the things that I was thinking about first is that in my mind, in pretty much every spirit category, there is the party spirits. You've got, you know, Fireball perhaps is an example in in the whiskey category, you know, uh, Bacardi Limon in the rum category, or you've got uh, Absolute Mandarin or Three Olives, whatever. But it seems to me that at least from more of a uh, national perspective, speaking as Chris LeBeau, that there are, though, within each category, it always feels to me like there is some reverence for product. And rum seems to always kind of have this stumbling point where at least outside of a few fans, that most people's association isn't with anything good. It's all they're thinking of is Captain Morgan, Parrot Bay, and their college days. Do you have the same impression of that? And if so, why do you think that's the case? So <clears throat> I would say that that's kind of a, a yes and a no. So I wouldn't say that. So when I went to college, I, I didn't have the same college days that a lot of um, people did because, you know, kind of, I, I worked my way through college, so I was a bartender most of the time. So I, I witnessed a lot of those college days for people. Um, but 
I, I think that it has to do with, um, so, so I kind of experienced them is what I'm saying, but not completely. I, I saw the inhibitions of cheap rum and cheap spirits. Um, but I think that the reason why rum that from, and this is my opinion, this is probably very loosely based on any kind of factual knowledge or anything, but to me, a lot of that stumbling block comes from, I would say category like regulations. So there's not a lot of structure to the category. So, one government says that this is a rum. Another government says this is a rum and all these different. And it's not that all of those governments aren't right is those different rum traditions. And so you take all these different types of traditions because, you know, it's like rum, rum is one of the spirits that a lot of people like to attribute whiskey to America. But to me, rum is the spirit of the Americas. It was, you know, made by the poorest of poor, drank by the richest of rich. It was, um, you know, it's like, it's, it's kind of what like tied all that together. And then it was kind of abandoned. And, and I think by that kind of abandoning of it, it hurt the integrity of what it was. And I think that the abandoning happened because of past indiscretions they were brought on by the treatment of, you know, the cane workers on, on the plantations. Right. And, and I think that, you know, there's kind of that shame thing of like, a lot of people don't like to address that. Um, instead of recognizing the beauty of the spirit that, you know, really in a way it's like should never have happened, but it did happen because you, you brought this, you know, you like sugar cane, and this is where I, I believe this is true, but I'm not 100% positive. Um, but I believe sugarcane isn't a, an American, like it's not a, an American native species. This one I actually know. It come, it's originally from Papua New Guinea and through various trade uh, and then eventually the slave trade yep. made its way to the New World. Exactly. And, so, and, that, and that's what I thought it was. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't from here. Much like through the slave trade, you had workers that were put onto these plantations against their will. And so you took these two things that weren't meant to be here, mm -hmm. but then because of both of them being here, it like, that's how we got rum. And a lot of people don't like to, I, so I think it was kind of a shame thing of like, people don't really want to dig into that or talk about it. And instead of recognizing the, like, it's like, this horrible thing happened and there's nothing like, like it happened, but look at what, what this group of individuals that should never, like should never have been treated that way. They still made something beautiful. Sure. And they made rum. I don't know if that makes sense. I, I, I think so. I mean, it's uh, on my level, my family, um, we've kind of dug more into heritage in recent years. And I think, yeah, when you find ways that you are connected and especially to be connected, not just through, you know, a story, but also through craft in some kind, yeah, you know, to be actually connected to the earth in the way that yeah. you are feels very powerful. Yeah. And so I will say, um, and you might've perused it as well uh, for anybody who wants to go real deep on rum, uh, and a bottle of rum by Wayne Curtis is a great book where you can take the whole walk. But yeah, I mean, as I've dug into things too, until I read it point blank in various books to realize that for a long time, the largest part of the slave trade, the colonial slave trade was anchored in sugarcane is certainly a, a hard thing, but to also be able to use it for, um, as a story to not move away from, but move towards this thing, I think is very powerful. Yeah. So you mentioned apples yeah your apple brandy we are sitting on the edge of an apple orchard here yeah so we've already talked about how your rum is very tied to family heritage and you know staying close to, and keeping true to the product yep i 
know because you were talking about earlier that your belief about brandy and agricultural practices in general um, follow the same line. Talk about that a little bit for us. Yeah, so um, kind of our, I would say, you know, everybody that works with me says that I need to have like a definitive mission statement. And uh, I'm really bad about that because I'm a rebel at heart. And uh, I'm like, well, the moment I put pen to paper and I write something down, it's going to change. And uh, then my wife's like, yep, it will, but you should probably do it anyway. And I haven't done it yet. So four years in, we still kind of don't have a mission statement, although I'm working on it. Before long, people are going to be amazed. But (laughs) one of those like pillars, the best way to put it, as I say, a pillar of what we do is that we are agriculturalists first. We believe that the only way to um, make premium, like premium spirits is to start with the ground in which we grow them. So if we want to make an apple brandy, we need to grow the trees. And if we grow the trees, then we can grow the apples. And by governing the process from start to finish, we're able to develop the flavor profiles by interacting with the soil, by proper compost techniques, by uh, watershed. All of these things allow us to be better stewards of what we've been given first, but then also it allows me to start to begin to like begin that romance with the spirit before it is made. Because when you, you know, when you, when you're looking at, you know, the buds on apple trees or you're, you know, you're, you're seeing how the bees interact in the, in the field, you can start to understand how the trees, um, I don't know, want to be treated the way that they should be treated. You know, it's like they're, they're a very delicate species and properly caring for them and taking the time to care for them properly before I take from them, you know, it's like, I'm giving them all of these things. Um, it's like, then they're giving back, you know? And so there's kind of a romance to me of that, but it's, you know, we're agriculturalists first. And what that means to us is that we grow that, which we make into spirits so that as an end consumer, yes, there are other rums on the market. There are other brandies on the market. There are other spirits but we're not selling you a spirit. We're selling you a commitment to being stewards of the soil and tending the ground, which make our spirits, which grow the, the product to make our spirits. Um, and it's hard. You know, I, I think we were talking earlier that a heavy frost hit the orchard that we're setting in and we lost 90% of the apples, you know? So, you know, we've, you lose 90%. The 2021 vintage of our apple brandy will be few and far between. You know, and it's, it's, a, it's a gut punch. But you, uh, you know, that's part of working, being an agriculturalist distillery. Is, you know, um, when you get hit with hurricanes in Louisiana, it's not going to the sugar mills and saying, who can get me the cheapest sugar cane? It's going, we will have less rum. And you tighten the belt and you make the rum you got and then you get creative, you know, and yeah. So while I love nothing about hearing about the 90% loss of the crop, what I hear and what you're saying and I believe that, that this line of thinking does exist in the craft industry, but what I hear is something that I feel like is we, we hear a lot more now in the food industry where people are thinking more about, you know, we are what we eat eats. You know, this idea that uh, caring for the vegetables, caring for, you know, the livestock that we are consuming matters. And at least at this point, sometimes I feel like that story is not yet told to the same level that, you know, we look at all these bottles of like magical fire water, but we don't think about like, how did this begin? And what was that land like? And of course, to Rum's earlier story, like you said, uh, who are the people that made this? And of course, especially historically, and perhaps not wholly excluded today, 
how were they treated as they were making this. And so I think that is the important part and like the thing to remember behind. And I will, I remember a statement you said as well, and it, I'll run to another question I wanted to ask, but I remember last, I remember the first time we met and I remember thinking I was driving out here for a 45 minute discussion and leaving three hours later with my buddy Brandon going like, that guy is intense and cares a whole lot about this. But I remember you saying when I was here, there are certain bottles to bottle my rum in that I won't buy because I, I don't have good enough eyes on the supply chain to know where did this glass come from? Like what's, like what's, what's the factory it was made in? How was it sourced? And I think yep. these are the things that we as consumers can miss, like supply chain in a global world can be a very dirty, murky business. Yeah. And when people want to look at why is a bottle of X priced, you know, A compared to like a lot more and it's quality of the product, quality of the materials housing that product, labor and wages of the people making the product. So, yeah, so I, I feel like these are the things I hear from you. Um, so I guess in a way, and uh, as we kind of move towards wrapping up, and you can, you can certainly let me know if there's anything else you want to get into, but I have a couple of things just for people out there, because yeah. I do find, to one of my earlier questions, that rum is often one of the lesser explored spirits. And, you know, based on things we've talked about before, about your thoughts about, like, you know, uh, companies and their labor practices, this might curtail the question, which is just fine. But if someone was like, hey, obviously, other than going out and buying some bottles of Ducket rum, duh, uh, if they wanted to like, hey, I want to I play around or get to know rum a little bit, are there a couple of brands or bottles that come to mind that you'd recommend for people if they were going to start a little shelf for themselves? Yeah, so... Um <clears throat> I can't say that I do like extensive research into every other brand um, of their, you know, labor practices. Um, there are fantastic brands that I think make fantastic products um, that I'm huge, you know, absolute fans of, you know, they're kind of, um, I don't know, pioneers in the industry. And, I would say those people inspire me. Um, you know, one of which is, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Maggie Campbell. Um, she's the former master distiller or head distiller, um, of privateer rum. And she was recently just awarded the estate manager position of, um, Oh, what is the, it's one of like the most well-known rums. Um, Maggie Campbell. Okay, if anything, I will put this in the notes if we can't come to yeah, mind. Yeah, I can't but. think of where she was just um, given, like, a state manager. Um, I don't know her personally. Sure. I just know her work. I've drank a lot of her work. Um, and she's a fantastic individual that, um, like I said, I don't know her personally. She doesn't know me, so she, we've never crossed paths. I'm an introvert, so I don't cross paths with a lot. Maggie Demetrius says hi. Yeah. <laughs> um, another one would be Richard Seal. Uh, Richard Seal is the owner um, of Foursquare Rum Distillery. Uh, he he is a master rum distiller in every way. Um, you know, he's he's another one. You know, I I would assume based upon the character of who they are. Um, that they would demand and require, you know, proper labor practices within their facilities and, you know, all those things. I've never worked there, you know, I, you know, I don't know, but, um, you know, fantastic. Just, you know, uh, so those are some of the brand, you know, and then there are spirits underneath them. I, I highly recommend, um, you know, everything Foursquare. Cool. And so based on those two pieces, we'll put a little uh, link to, to their products yeah. for people to kind of... Absolutely. So one final question uh, before we kind of sign off, unless there's anything else you want to get to, and then we'll talk also about like uh, where, where people should go if they'd like to learn more about, uh, about Nobletons. Yeah. But 
You know, I'm always interested in that uh, very casual uh, thing where suddenly people drop by and like, what are we having, right? So uh, we are right now on the precipice of moving into colder months. Mm-hmm. You know, if friends or family were to stop by, uh, what's something, you know, that you might be uh, churning out cocktail or drink wise in the cooler months? Hot buttered rum. You can, uh, I think, go to our Instagram page and uh, get that. Uh, You can also email me and I will then send it to you. Um, If you hang out long enough, I will end up making it and drinking copious amounts. Um, Hot butter rum is the greatest uh, thing ever. So I had a sneaking suspicion. Um, And just in case. Hopefully people are stumbling upon this all the time. So it's a, it's a warmer month. People are coming over in June or July or something like that. What might you be turning out at that time of year? Caprahania. Okay. Um, and this is because I'm an, I'm a nerd. So anybody that knows, um, Brazilian cachaça. So, um, our silver rum, anybody that knows cachaça and may happen to know agricole, um, Agricole is made in a column still ish, but it's usually five or six plates. Cachaça is made in a 28 plate usual column. We have a 15 plate column. Um, so it's kind of my love of both that I was like, how do we combine both are made from pre- fresh, fresh cane juice? So how do we make our own style that has both the texture, the aroma? Because cachaça is very neutral, but it has the texture. And agricole is very floral, but doesn't quite have the texture. And so I was like, how do we combine the two? So um, it makes a mean Cabrania. And And so for people out there listening, this is similar to the daiquiri, rum, lime, and sugar, but often is pressed a little bit in order to better get some of the um, the, the oils out of the lime, the lime peel. So um, got it. Yeah. Well... Demetrius, unless you have anything else, um, this has been wonderful, but hopefully people are, their interests are piqued about all this, but if they want to learn more about Nobletons, how do they, how do they learn more or or, or what do you want the people to know at this point? Yeah. So, um, probably the best way is to go to our webpage, which is very outdated. Hopefully by the time of listening, I will have, uh, updated said website. Um, with upcoming events and spirits. Um, if it was not mentioned earlier, I am an introvert that re- that prefers uh, reading rare historical distilling texts into the wee hours of the night and then waking up early and milking cows. So, like, that's my life. Um, so I don't spend a lot of time uh, online broadcasting stuff because I just like making it. Um, But if you go to our website, it may or may not be updated. It has some good information there. The other thing is to uh, send me an email. um, Give us a call. I usually pick up the phone. um, And or to come out and visit us. Um, We are in the process of opening up our tasting room. um, And so you can have the joy of uh, having a personal tour probably from me because we're a small operation. <laughs> so um, you'll get to experience it firsthand, enjoy some spirits. and. So what about a quick uh, uh, email, uh, phone number, and, and website for the, for the folks? Yeah. So uh, website is www.nobletons, N-O-B-L-E-T-O-N-S, dot com uh telephone number is 314-252-8990 and that's our distillery phone and then an email if you just info at nobletons.com by the way if you're a if you're a fan of bacardi try getting a phone number out of them so uh, <laughs> uh but that's a story for another time so uh, uh demetrius also th- your tax tax dollars are paying for part of that rum okay so that's part of episode two for sure right there (laughs) so uh demetrius thanks 
for your time. Uh, this has been awesome, and I uh, uh, can't wait to do it again. Uh, and thanks for all of your work. It's uh, it's it's wonderful. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Have a good night. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you liked the interview, the transcript and show notes are located at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself, Chris LeBeau. Subscribe to avoid missing an episode. And if you think this is good stuff, share it with a friend or review us on your listening platform. And check out our newsletter, Cocktail Confidential. Remember, the best way to get better at mixology is to practice. And the best way to do that is in the company of friends and family. Happy cocktailing, everybody. Thank you.